You're listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. Midtown Church is a family compelled by God's love to practice the way of Jesus together in Austin. Our big prayer is this, in Austin as it is in heaven. Learn more at midtownaustin.org. I have, uh, I have so many memories from childhood um, of being read to uh, by my parents, whether, whether that was scripture or whether that was like fun and wacky kids books, like The Day the Goose Got Loose. Anybody know that one? Incredible book. Um, and also some devastatingly sad children's books like Bridge to Terabithia. Do y'all know that? Yikes. Um, but one, one of the books that I remember, a book series I remember my parents reading to me a lot, uh, is a series about a character named Amelia Bedelia. And Amelia Bedelia is, uh, she's a funny lady. She is a maid who works in this house, and she has trouble with following instructions. And her problem is that she takes instructions too literally. So her, the, the you know, lady of the house will say, um, Amelia Bedelia, dress the chicken, and she will make a set of overalls and put it on the, the chicken. Um, or they'll say, dust the furniture. And instead of removing dust from the furniture, she will apply dust to the furniture. Um, they tell her, put out the lights. And she takes all of the lights and lamps out of the house and puts them outside the house in the front yard. Um, and Amelia Bedelia is it's meant to sort of teach the, uh, the importance of understanding idioms. That there, sometimes there are phrases that don't mean what they seem like they mean on the surface. Sometimes there are phrases that don't make sense outside of their native context uh, or that don't translate language to language. Almost 10 years ago, I was on a missions trip in Mexico with, uh, with Josh and Kari Chevalier and some other folks from our church. And uh, we've been playing soccer that day. And at dinner, I was sitting around talking with, uh, with some of the folks through a translator. And I was sort of pulling their leg about how well I performed in the soccer game. And so I was like, I had four assists. I scored six goals. Um, I, I saved two goals, even though I was not playing as the, the goalkeeper. And as I'm saying all this, my translator, I hear him say, le está poniendo mucha crema a sus tacos, which means he's putting a lot of cream on his tacos, <laughs> which, which is to say uh, he's bragging, right? He's exaggerating. That didn't really happen. But that's an example of one of these phrases, sort of, it seems like it means one thing, but it really means another, and you have to have some more information to get what it means. And we're going to encounter one of those phrases this morning uh, in our teaching. So let's go ahead and jump right into Matthew 6. Just for context, Jesus is going to continue some themes from earlier in the Sermon on the Mount. We're in our Sermon on the Mount series, and there's a couple major themes that have been introduced so far in the sermon. For example, one of them is that righteousness is not about what you do, it's about who you are. Righteousness is not about what you do. It's about who you are. It's not about external obedience to the law. Jesus says, you have heard it said, right? It's not about external obedience to the law. It is about internal righteousness. So you've heard it said, don't murder. I tell you, if you hate your brother in your heart, you're guilty of the same sin. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I tell you, if you lust after them in your heart, if you would do the deed, if the circumstances were different, you don't get credit for not doing it on the outside when it's in your heart. So that's one of the themes. Righteousness is not about what you do. It's about who you are. And there's another theme that he's been um, developing so far in the sermon, and that's that we should prioritize and seek the eternal and not the temporary. 
the eternal and not the temporary. So for example, um, making a public display of piety to get praise from people is about something temporary, whereas giving in secret so the reward will come from God is about something eternal. And so, so far in the sermon, Jesus is drawing our attention. He wants us to focus on the internal and the eternal, okay? The internal and the eternal. And what he says in this section that we're looking at this morning will set up the rest of uh, what's contained in chapter six, and then even into chapter seven of the Sermon on the Amount. And he applies this principle specifically to money, but it's a bigger concept than money. And so I'll talk about money a little bit, but I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about the ins and outs of Jesus teaching on wealth. If you're interested in that, actually, the last time I spoke at Midtown uh, last year, June 13th um, of last year, I spoke on wealth out of our Proverbs series, and I drew direct connections between the teaching of the book of Proverbs and the Jewish wisdom tradition on wealth with what Jesus is doing in the gospel. So if you're really interested in that, scroll back in our podcast to uh, June of last year and find the the sermon on wisdom and wealth from our foolproof uh, series. And um, now that I'm talking about teaching, in the past, I realized that some of y'all just might not know me. My name is Matt Tolander. It's great to meet you. I am the, uh, I'm the spiritual formation pastor on staff at Midtown. I've been at Midtown since uh, 2017, and it's just a joy to be with you all this morning, and um, it's a joy to worship with you guys. The band is doing an incredible job, an incredible, incredible job. And so I'm just, I'm Just so happy to be here this morning in the house of God with you. So let's turn to Matthew chapter 6 in our Bibles, where Jesus says, verse 19, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. Now, this is not necessarily a hard part of the passage to understand. What does it mean to store up treasures on earth? What does accumulation look like? Here's what accumulation looks like. Americans spend $1.2 trillion annually on non-essential goods, so aka stuff we don't need. The average American house, not the average American home, the average American house has tripled in size over the last 50 years and contains more than 300,000 items. The fastest growing segment of the American commercial real estate industry is off-site storage. There are 50,000 such facilities in our country, which is more than five times the number of Starbucks. The combined square footage of all of these storage facilities is enough that we could fit every American man, woman, and child inside them with about seven square feet of room per person. And we pass these values down to our children. 3.1% of the world's children live in America, and they own 40% of the world's toys. The average 10-year-old owns 238 toys, but plays with 12 daily. This is what storing up treasures on earth looks like. This is what accumulating wealth and possessions for ourselves looks like. Because none of the things I just mentioned, none of the stuff you can put in any of those storage units, none of those 300,000 items, none of those 238 toys, Uh, that your kids may own, none of that stuff will last. That's what Jesus says. Moth and rust can destroy it. Someone can 
come in and take it from you. And even if you can manage to keep it intact, and even if you can manage to, to protect it and keep it from being stolen, it will not accompany you into the life to come. And so we're trying to look at what, what's the really important thing. So if that's the temporary thing, remember Jesus is trying to draw our attention from the temporary to the eternal. The treasure on earth is the temporary thing. He's contrasting it with what he calls treasure in heaven, which is a lasting thing. He says, verse 20, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Now, what does it mean to store up treasure in heaven? There's a really good way to answer this question. Now, when you're reading your Bible, and you come across a phrase that you don't understand, the first thing you should do is search through the rest of the book that you're reading and try and find other places in the book where that phrase appears, because that will give you an idea of how the author is trying to use it. And this phrase, treasure in heaven, appears again in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 19, in which a rich young man comes to Jesus and asks him the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you must admit that you are a sinner. And you must believe that I'm going to die for you, and you must choose to follow me. Except he doesn't say that. He says, keep the commandments. And this is where we'll pick it up in verse 18. Uh, which ones? He, the man inquired, which commandments? Jesus replied, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. All of these I have kept. What do I still lack? I mean, if there were ever a son of the kingdom, as the kingdom of heaven is described in the gospel of Matthew, this man is it. And yet Jesus tells him, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. The word perfect in this story with the rich young man, echoes is the same word that Jesus uses earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 48, where he says, you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Perfect means wholeness in this context. It's about a righteousness that's not just external, but flows from the inside out such that I am an undivided, uncompartmentalized person with integrity, who is a whole person whose inside is consistent with what's on the outside. And the reference, the repetition of the phrase treasure in heaven in this story refers not only to giving to the poor, but it refers also to relinquishing possessions in order to do so. So not just giving out of the poor out of stuff I have left over, but actually uh, sort of liquidating some resources and putting all of my resources to use to serve the people who need it. So a working definition this morning for storing up treasures in heaven. To store up treasure in heaven means to compassionately use my material resources to meet the physical and spiritual needs of others in keeping with the priorities of God's kingdom. That's what it means to store up treasure in heaven, to compassionately use my material resources, my money, my possessions, my home, etc., to meet the physical and spiritual needs of others in keeping with the priority of God's kingdom. Jesus goes on, verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, you've probably, you've heard us say again and again in this series that the heart is in Jewish thought, it's the control center of the person. So it includes things like our thoughts, our desires, um, our will, or our volition. 
and it especially includes our trust. We see that in Proverbs 3, 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart. So the heart spiritually is the thing that we trust with. And so what, it mean, what Jesus means when he says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, he means that we organize our lives naturally around the things that are most important to us. We organize our lives around them. And we'll get into a, a little more, we'll uncover a little more of what he means uh, a little later. But first, we have to talk about another part of the body. Uh, because instead of proceeding to give a teaching on the heart, Jesus pivots and it seems like, like a digression, but he pivots to talking about the eye, a different part of the body altogether. And this is where things get really interesting. So he says in verse 22, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? It reads like this very cryptic sort of foreboding digression between two ideas that seem related. Doesn't it seem like he's kind of off on a tangent about the eye? What, what is he on about? Um, is there something about the eye that affects our whole body, our whole essence, our whole being, our whole life? It depends on what you think he means by a healthy or unhealthy eye. And so let's look at that. The simplest explanation, the simplest explanation is that having a good eye means seeing money for what it is and prioritizing, excuse me, and prioritize. Uh, the simplest explanation here is that having a good eye means seeing money for what it is and not prioritizing it over God. That's the simplest explanation. Um, and it's good advice, but it's not what the passage is saying. So if that's what you thought, I want you to take that idea and put it off to the side as we look a little deeper. The, the New International Version uh, translates the Greek word hoplus as healthy in this verse. And most English translations do translate it healthy, so I'm not just picking on one. Uh, though some also translate it sound or clear. Or in the King James Version, single, if thine eye be single, which is closer actually to the literal meaning of this Greek word hoplus. Hoplus means single or whole or undivided. And so with that in mind, it would seem like it connects thematically to the word that we talked about already, perfect. Single, whole, undivided, complete, lacking nothing. And this would also, by extension, connect this passage to the story of the rich young man. It would seem that having a healthy eye is about having an undivided or a single vision. But then there's the matter of the unhealthy eye. And the word paneros, which is translated unhealthy, doesn't mean unhealthy. It is not translated unhealthy anywhere else in the New Testament. It means evil or bad. And so the, the, the distinction here is between whether I'll have a healthy eye or an evil eye? So given that the evil eye, the word behind evil eye, has a clearer meaning, let's use that word to clarify some other stuff. This is where Amelia Bedelia comes in. Because what's happening in this text is that Jesus has used a Jewish idiom. And the author who we call Matthew is trying to translate that idea into Greek. And then Bible translators through the ages are trying to translate that Greek into English. And we're playing translation telephone uh, with Jesus' figure of speech. The, um, the Hebrew language uses eyes 
and sight as a metaphor to describe uh, a person's attitude toward other people. Person's attitude toward other people. So a person who has ayin tova, a good eye, looks out for, sees the needs of others and is generous in giving away their resources to the poor or to people who need them. Whereas a person who has ayin ra'ah, a bad eye, an evil eye, is self-centered and has very little regard for the needs of others and is stingy and mostly just uses their money on themselves. And these phrases, these specific phrases, ayin tova, the good eye, ayin ra'ah, the bad eye, along with other references to seeing, occur all through the Old Testament. For example, Genesis 22, when Abraham is willing and he's about to sacrifice his son Isaac and God provides a ram, Abraham renames the mountain Jehovah Jireh, which means the Lord will provide. Except it doesn't mean the Lord will provide exactly. It means the Lord will see. God's sight and his provision and his providing action are linked together. We're going to see another example of this uh, in just a moment. So let's look actually at Deuteronomy 15, 7 through 11. You may not spend a lot of time in Deuteronomy. I really suggest you change your mind about that. You should rethink that. Deuteronomy, if you understand Deuteronomy, you can understand the whole Bible. If you understand Deuteronomy 28, you can understand the entire Old Testament. So here's Deuteronomy 15, and we're going to pick it up in verse 7, but you need to know that Deuteronomy 15 starts with this command from God. Every seven years in the nation, you cancel all the debts. That was God's plan. So debt forgiveness, big deal to God. Every seven years in God's nation, among God's people, you are to cancel all the debts. And so here's the instruction in Deuteronomy 15, starting in verse 7. If anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God is giving to you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. Be careful not to harbor this wicked thought. The seventh year, the year for canceling debts, is near, so that you do not show ill will toward the needy among your fellow Israelites and give them nothing. In other words, if you're in year five and someone comes to you and asks you for a big loan and your thought is... Oh man, if they can't pay it back in two years, then I'm going to have to forgive it. And I'm not going to be able to recoup all that money. God says that's wickedness. He says, don't be careful not to harbor that thought so that you do not show ill will literally in the Hebrew so that you will not have ayin ra'ah so that you will not have an evil eye. What's the danger of an evil eye? goes on, they may then appeal to the Lord against you and you will be found guilty of sin. In the Hebrew, appeal to the Lord is literally cry out. And we see the words cry out uh, in, the, in the Torah, in the Old Testament. It harkens back to the Exodus. What does God say to Moses in Exodus 3 when Moses encounters the burning bush? He says, I have seen the plight of my people in Egypt and I have heard their cry. And so if your action towards somebody causes them to cry out to God, then in this verse, you're, it's likening that person to Pharaoh. It's likening that person to someone who oppresses, someone who enslaves, someone who God needs to rescue this person from. 
So it says, give generously to them and do so without a grudging heart. Then because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. We also see it beyond the Torah. We also see it in the wisdom tradition in Proverbs. Proverbs 22, 9. The generous, literally those with the good eye, will themselves be blessed, for they share their food with the poor. Proverbs 28, 22, the stingy, literally, those with an evil eye, are eager to get rich and unaware that poverty awaits them. Echoes things that Jesus says, right? Woe to you who are rich now, those sorts of things. Now, the question of whether you have a good or a generous eye or a bad, stingy eye It doesn't just have to do with the way that you think about money, and it doesn't just have to do with the way you think about people. It has to do with the way that you perceive the whole world, um, which is really just another way of saying that it has to do with the way you see God. It has to do with the way you think about God. So is God a God of scarcity and limited resources, or is God a God of total freedom and abundance and infinite resources and goodness? Which one? How, how, uh, how difficult it is for you to part with your money when faced with someone in need reveals what you believe about this, according to this text. Jesus illustrates this idea uh, in one of his parables, the parable of the laborers uh, in the vineyard, which is one of his more irritating parables, to be honest. Um, I sometimes wish that Jesus' commandments were harder to understand, because then I would have more excuse for why I don't obey them. Um, So for context, for context here, because of the tax burden that the occupying Romans had put on Judea, many Jews had their ancestral homeland, their, you know, their parcel for their family. Many of these Jews had their ancestral land uh, seized by the Romans for for non-payment of taxes. And the Romans would then use this land for profit and they would hire the Jews to come and work on those fields. So imagine the shame of having your ancestral land taken from you and then being hired back as a day laborer to go work on the land that used to be yours. Now that doesn't necessarily change the meaning of the parable, but that's the arrangement that Jesus is talking about here. He says in Matthew 20, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day. A denarius is worth about a day's wage. He agreed to pay them a denarius for a day and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning, so say four hours later, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I'll pay you whatever's right. So they went. He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. Uh, About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one's hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. Interesting. The first will be last and the last will be first. Jesus, what are you doing? 
Verse 9, the workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So when those, who were hi- when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. So they've all worked these different amounts of times, and the landowner has paid them all the same thing. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. Those who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work in the heat of the day. Now, do they have a point? Do they have a point? I mean, like, look, look me in the eye and tell me that you would not feel the same way. Come on, I would. They didn't earn it. It's not fair. Or, or is it? Is it not fair? Is it not fair? What does he say next? He answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? Literally, is your eye evil because I am good? So have you ever had something happen? Something like you ever been in a situation where something good has happened to someone and you can't be happy for them? Have you ever been like bitter? or jealous about the presence of goodness or talent or money or abundance or joy or pleasure or something else in someone else's life? That's a bad eye. That's an evil eye. So here's what my bad eye looks like. Some things that have been showing up for for me recently. Sometimes I feel jealous when my friends make big purchases. Um, So sometimes I feel jealous like when my friends get a new car or when my friends buy a house or go on some sort of fancy vacation. And I'm like, of course you're going to hear about it or you're going to see it on Instagram because it's like all of this, all of, we now will make these big purchases in a real performative way where we post them all over social media and stuff. So like, of course I'm going to find out about it and feel that prick of comparison, that prick of jealousy, that little prick of envy. Sometimes I feel jealous around people who are talented at things that I would like to be talented at or who are more talented than me at things I'm very talented at. That's even worse. That's even worse. I feel jealousy in those moments. Sometimes I feel jealous of how many other close friends my friends have besides me. You ever been there scrolling on Instagram? Oh, they're hanging out without me again. Twice, twice in a week. I couldn't get that text. Sitting at a, at a bar the other night, my buddy who's a few years younger than me and is in his 20s is telling me about how he bought a second house as an investment property. <laughs> like, two houses? Really? That must be nice. It's my evil eye. It's my evil eye. It's evidence in my life of a lack of, a lack of trust in the goodness and the, uh, the abundance and the attentiveness of God. So here's my new, here's my new mantra in those moments. Am I envious because God is generous? Am I envious because God is generous? Am I so blind to the goodness of God in my own life that the goodness in someone else's threatens me or offends me that I take it personally and it becomes an affront to me? Because if I'm, not, if I'm not able to rejoice with those who rejoice, what it means is that I'm not reconciled to my own life. 
Um, it means, yeah, like if I can't celebrate the good in other people's lives, it's because I'm not seeing the good in mine. I heard, uh, I heard the columnist George Will remark one time that envy is the only one of the seven deadly sins uh, which doesn't bring even a moment of satisfaction. Uh, Shakespeare may have been referencing the King James Bible when he wrote uh, in Othello, beware my lord of jealousy, for it is the, you might know it, green-eyed monster, which does what? It doth mock the meat it feeds on. Man, is that not what it feels like to be jealous and to want and then to get and then to immediately want again because there's something else and there's, there's always more. It's, it's Tom Brady winning however many rings and then being asked in the interview, how many is enough? And he goes, one more. I mean, it's great to, to make you a competitive guy on the football field. It's not great to make you a happy person in the rest of life. So does it now make perfect sense why Jesus says, if the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? If you can't enjoy the good in your life from God and you can't enjoy the good that God is putting in other people's lives, even, even the good to you is bad, even the light is darkness, how great is that darkness? You're in a miserable state. And darkness honestly doesn't even begin to describe the experience. It feels like this living death where every good thing that happens to someone else is just a threat to me. And it's alienating and it's depressing. So this is why Jesus says in verse 24 of Matthew 6 in our passage, no one can serve two masters. Either you'll, you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And the word translated money here is the Greek mammonos, which comes from an Aramaic word that means mammon. Uh, and mammon itself, that Aramaic word, comes from a different word, which means trust or reliance. Jesus personifies wealth, mammon, uh, as the only serious competitor to God in the New Testament, specifically because of the way it undermines our trust in God by commanding our trust for itself. So undergirding all of these teachings that we've looked at this morning from Matthew and from Deuteronomy and from Proverbs, undergirding all of these teachings is the idea of trust. Like that's what's in view when Jesus says, your heart follows your treasure. It's about trust. So do I trust that I am the child of a good God and that I live in God's good world? Do I trust that God actually cares about me? Do I trust that God desires my well-being? Do I trust that God will actually provide for my needs? Do I trust that God's world is a perfectly safe place to be? Um, money can short-circuit this trust because it promises to deliver us from things we don't really trust God to deliver us from, um, like sickness, and unexpected tragedy and things like that. Well, if I can shore up enough money, I can protect myself. And certainly there's wisdom in planning for the worst. But if your ultimate hope for the security of your life is in money, then that is a problem. Money promises to deliver us from anxiety, from boredom, from loneliness, from pain. And then so often money actually turns around uh, and just exacerbates the problem. Right, nothing, nothing in the world at all overpromises and underdelivers like wealth. Um, or take it from uh, you take Biggie Smalls' maxim: "Mo money, mo problems." Amen. Um, listen, uh, as, as the band comes up um, and as the servers prepare communion, I just want to reflect on a couple questions, um, and I want you to ask these questions of yourself. 
They're tough questions. Uh, do you use money either by saving or spending to cope with your anxiety? Do you save money to cope with your anxiety? Or do you spend money to cope with your anxiety? Do you think that it's up to you to, to secure your well-being? Do you think that your well-being is ultimately your responsibility? If God isn't meeting your needs when and how you want, do you run out ahead of God and try to meet your own needs in an illegitimate way? Do you think that a, a life of radical generosity is a less fulfilling life? Do you believe that? Do you trust God enough to let go of whatever earthly treasures you may be holding on to? These are incredibly tough questions. Um, and these aren't just questions that I'm directing at you. I feel like these are questions that God is asking of all of us um, this morning, including me. Um, and I, in preparing this, I really felt this, um, this burden that I really, I can't convince you, uh, I cannot convince you uh, that God is generous. I cannot convince you that a life of radical generosity is a, is a better life to live. Um, I can't convince you that storing up just stuff and stuff and stuff and money and money and money and stuff and stuff uh, will make you miserable. I can't convince you of any of that. Um, but I do believe uh, that the Holy Spirit can. And so what I want to do uh, as we end uh, is I just want to pour some scripture on you and just tell you what uh, and just tell you what scripture says about the generosity of God. And let the Spirit just speak this into all of our hearts, put it in all of our hearts this morning. So here is the Scripture's testimony concerning the goodness of our God. It says, instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be conceited and not to put their hope in the uncertainty of wealth, but in God, who richly provides all things for us to enjoy. When you give, give in secret, and your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. The Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is upright. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be open for everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks it will be open if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children how much more will your father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you've stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the father in my name, he will give it to you. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Blessed is the one you choose, God, and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you 
the desires of your heart. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become truly rich. God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not his benefits, who forgives all your sin, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with love and compassion, and who, listen, satisfies your desires with good things. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave, gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things. Thank you for listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. We invite you to practice the way of Jesus in Austin with us because as we become more like Jesus, Austin will become more like heaven.